0: This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we journey into the text of Isaiah, hearing the call of a father to his stubborn children.
1: Into the text. I like the sound of that. It's been a little while. I've been on sabbatical, Sabbath session, season seven, and uh, it's time to get back into the bible itself the material text mm-hmm. how you feel about that brent i feel good and uh
0: <laughs> the way this document looks it is a uh, it is threatening to go verse by verse through isaiah but we're not we're not quite going to do that but we snuck <laughs> we've up got on a lot it. of text we, we we've, we've got a lot of text
1: we thought about it as i put the document together i'm like man i'm almost doing every verse and then i finally got to a place where i was like i could skip this <laughs> 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 it is hard it's hard to get into the it's, it's very hard to pull out, and I, I'm kind of glad we don't do this. It's, it's very difficult to just pull out a single passage or a paragraph or something. Um, I, I always want to look at this much larger kind of swath of text to see where it's come from and where it's going. Um, that's part of my challenge. Verse by verse is certainly easier, but we'd be here for a long time in Isaiah Indeed. Well, I think uh, I think we can we can dive right in here. I think you got one verse before I stop you. One verse:
0: the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah.
1: All right. So we have some we have some setup there, and mainly the thing that's being communicated isn't just the who of the author, but the when of the writing. And so I spent a bunch of time. Before sabbatical and during sabbatical, kind of doing a bunch of study, getting ready for um, this series and kind of looking at Isaiah. And we chatted before, way back in session two, uh, Brent, we talked a lot about the four voices and we talked about all the different theories of, of how many authors and how many sections you have of Isaiah. And the theories abound, like... You could have just a mess of passages pulled together by a redactor and a who, and a who knows how many authors making up that text. You could have one author uh, writing the entire book. Probably the least likely scenario, but um, obviously a lot of people want to and do hold to that. Um, I used to teach three we talked about a few years ago when we were doing session two. Uh, and then after reading a, a few scholars, I actually have moved personally to see four different sections and potentially four voices, maybe four authors in Isaiah. Um, But the one thing I found dominantly, even even amongst some of the most conservative voices that I read and I studied, is at the very least people acknowledge two parts of Isaiah. There is a redaction at the end, like say Isaiah 36, 37, 38, 39. There's There's a chunk of history right there before Isaiah 40. And almost everybody notices that we have a clean break. So we're going to have this conversation, um, for this series. And I don't think I'm going to address the four voices concept a whole lot. It doesn't really matter. It's not really here or there in our notes. And I'm not sure what will all come out necessarily in our discussion, but in our notes, we've broken it up as, as the first chunk, there's two parts, Isaiah one through 39, and then Isaiah 40 through 66, um, And that's kind of what's driving the structure of this series and how we're going to look at it and deal with it. Um, But I will say when you read this first verse, uh, I think we can squarely take that position, even as staunch Biblicis, because he says during the reign of and then gives a list of kings. And if you'll notice, the last king he mentions is who? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Hezekiah is that last king right before it's where the history section lies right before. So by its own words, this section of Isaiah is going to cover the, the chunk of history up to Hezekiah. So so I, I, I like that, and I never really necessarily paid attention to that. And then I realized, oh, hey, that first intro verse basically says this is the vision and then refers to all the kings from the first chapter of Isaiah, which seems to be dealing with Ahaz. Is that the first king in the list, Brent? Uzziah. Uzziah. Okay, Sure. Um, yeah, and I think maybe those those might actually be the opening chapters. I would have to go back and check my timeline, and then Jotham. But you, you get into Ahaz. I believe in the next episode we'll be squarely in Ahaz, in chapter seven. We're going to try to do through. We're going to try to do six chapters of Isaiah today, first six, um, and, and then it's going to end with Hezekiah. So we at least we can at least say that Isaiah one through thirty nine is dealing with that chunk of time and. Uh, Worth noting, even in the text itself, as we got started.
0: Do we know um, the dates of these kings? Do we know enough about them historically to kind of place them in history?
1: I believe so. There's probably some... um, I'm trying to think of where these land in reference to Josiah. We've mentioned before, I think, back in... Was it all the way back in session two? And we talked about minimalism versus maximalism and the dominant scholastic theory for decades was that Josiah was where the Bible becomes more literal history. And the reason for that is because that's where we start to have a lot of extra biblical evidence for the, the the reality, the presence, the historicity of these kings. Now, you, you also heard me say, I don't necessarily take that line of thought at all. Um, I, I think all these kings and stuff are, are literal characters, and this is historical narrative. But um, the reason behind that is, is how much we can start to know starting around the days of Josiah, which, if I remember correctly, should be later than this. Um, but we do have some evidence for the reign of Hezekiah. We should be able to date those, if not just by the text itself. I'm not sure if there's extra biblical uh, evidence to help date those things. I mean, who knows? Maybe Elle would be a person to ask for that. She studied over there and she knows all the fun stuff. The, the the dirt stuff. I don't want to say the dirty stuff. The dirt stuff. The stuff that comes out of the dirt. Well, NET Footnotes says,
0: I, I mean, this part might be interpretive. It says, Isaiah's prophetic career probably began in the final year of Uzziah's reign, which they date to 740 BC. Okay. And reference Isaiah 6 verse 1. And then say it extended into the later years of Hezekiah's reign, which ended in 686.
1: That all feels and sounds good and right to me. And that would actually be a relatively conservative stance for uh, NET to be taken in their footnotes. And I, I like that. I prefer, I prefer to wait the conversation that way. So, so yeah, totally.
0: If, if it is that full range, then that's like a 55, 60 year prophetic career, which seems like a lot. So, you know, Isaiah lived a full life.
1: Yeah. It's part of why I typically see a couple voices. Um, in Isaiah 1 through 39, and I, I I split those at least into two. I feel like there's a different tone and meter. It could just be the same guy at different points of his career. Um, I'm no Hebrew expert. I will be very quick to tell you that. Um, but I, I just feel like there's enough. There's a distinctive stylistic change to me starting somewhere around Isaiah 12, give or take. So anyway, have we can all have our fun opinions. That's a fun part of it, as long as they're just opinions. Fair enough. On into
0: the text. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand.
1: Right, and I think of, i think of it was Reed, uh, and I can't remember if it was the last episode or the episode before, but in one of our intro episodes, Reed spoke about how um, this... This isn't just a, a a black and a white relationship, but it's a more nuanced relationship that resembled either a, a husband and, you know, uh being scorned by his spouse or uh or a or a father dealing with rebellious children. And immediately right off the bat we have we have God utilizing that metaphor, speaking of so we titled this episode as a father disciplines his sons. Like that's a that's a phrase that gets used throughout the scriptures, New Testament all those kinds of things. But there's this concept of this isn't just an abstract God behind a curtain in heaven, angry and full of wrath and playing whack-a-mole. As Reed said, you have a father who's very frustrated, as many of us who might be fathers have been frustrated with our children, and he's trying to get their attention. Like, why are you acting like this? Um, I actually, was just doing a weekend event um, where I was speaking, and in preparation for that event, I... Um, I had run across this this midrash and a wonderful book that I'll I'll recommend uh, the ache for meaning by Tommy Brown. Uh, I just met Tommy; he's become a good friend of mine and wrote a book. I think we'll have him on on the podcast sometime in the future, probably a few months out from now. But he wrote this book on the temptations of Jesus, titled "The Ache for Meaning," and in that he told the story of this midrash I had not heard of before. Um, but it's it it's a midrash about this father. Who is carrying the child through a marketplace. And and it's, it's more in reference to like, say, the Exodus story as they've just come out of Egypt, and they've crossed the Red Sea, and they're going through those testing, those desert testings and temptations. And the father is walking his child uh, uh, atop his shoulders. And every time he walks by something that the child wants, the child says, Daddy, get that for me. Daddy, get that for me. Daddy, get that for me. And every time the child asks Uh, The dad buys it for his child and gives it to him. And throughout the day, they just kind of walk through the marketplace. And towards the end of the day, um, somebody comes walking by and the child says to the stranger passing by, excuse me, have you seen my daddy? To which the dad responds, you foolish child, you are riding astride my shoulders. And every time you ask for something, I give it to you. And yet you ask this stranger and so there is this, the, the, I believe that some of the wisdom that the Midrash is trying to get at is there's something that happens to our relationship where we don't even recognize who God is when it becomes this transactional, God helps me build the world I want to build. God gives me the things that I want. And it, it makes it to where we can't even recognize the God who is our father. And that feels very much like what what, my, what may be taking place here in this in this in this passage Whew.
0: that is i like that yeah give us some more brent woe to the sinful nation a people whose guilt is great a brood of evildoers children given to corruption they have forsaken the lord they have spurned the holy one of israel and turned their backs on him
1: right and i think here of the of i think we were we I was quoting Heschel these last two episodes and this concept of you know few are guilty but all are responsible that came to mind as I looked at this fourth verse in Isaiah there there is a responsibility that God is calling his children to quite literally in the language a guilt so maybe maybe few are guilty maybe doesn't apply here <laughs> but certainly a communal corporate responsibility. This is not a prophecy in chapter one that is solely directed to corrupt leadership. There will be plenty of that conversation throughout Isaiah. There will be some who are guilty. There will be some leaders, even in this chapter, that Isaiah will call out the leaders of Israel. But but at this point, we have heard him speaking about the people of Judah and a nation that has experienced a disruption in this relationship.
0: Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah.
1: All right. So here is Isaiah trying to get the attention of his readers. And and as we described it in session two, I don't think they see they're at this point, they're living the high life. There is a status quo, or as Heschel pointed out, this isn't. This isn't a, a gap between the rich and the poor and a corrupt leadership and a people like like it might be in, in Israel to the north in Samaria. This is a whole nation that is benefiting from a particular commercial world that they have. There's an economic reality that they're benefiting from. And Isaiah, I, I think they would have heard these words as you like, what? You've got to be kidding. And then this, this hearkening to Sodom and Gomorrah, like... Th- them are fighting words. Like, that's not just like, hey, we have some things we ought to consider. Let's break out into some discussion groups and, you know, think about how we might apply this. This is, <laughs> y- you have lost the plot of the story, God's wrath and judgment in a world where they are likely experiencing all kinds of economic growth, comfort, um, wh- whatever you would like to call those things, luxury. Uh, prestige, I don't know what those things might look like for them or the words that we might use for that, but a world that is, is, by all their metrics, working, and yet Isaiah calls that out and says, and says no. Hear the
0: word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them.
1: Okay, and and this is one of my favorite sections. That's why I let you read a little chunk of verses there. Is I love this. I mean, there's such—this is that strong, provocative language that Brueggemann spoke about, that we talked about in the last two episodes, where what Brueggemann is saying is he's trying to call out the bankrupt—like, this, this worldview that they think is so sturdy and secure— He's trying to call it the mortality, the futility of that system, to show it as being bankrupt. And so there's all this provocative language. And yet, what strikes me about this section is it tells me, it proves to me that they're not just building, it's not that they're just building a commercial enterprise, this wonderful, comfortable world of wealth and greed, and not, like, not, we would say, not going to church, like, not caring about. God or his ways. Apparently, they're celebrating the festivals. They're doing the the new moons. They're bringing the offerings. They're engaging in all the church stuff. Like, it, it... I would imagine from their perspective, they're like, ah, oh, we're comfortable. Things have never been better. Our fields are producing great crops. I've got a wonderful house. I got a, I got a summer home. I'm actually adding house to house and field to field. I, I've never lived better. And and I'm worshiping God and I'm doing all the things. And it's at this point where, um, see, the danger of studying the prophets when you have a commitment to historical context is that you can easily make it just about them and then, even more dangerously, you can make it this kind of like critique of Judah and Israel, this kind of supersessionist. It, it, can, it can start to feel a little like, oh, those stupid Israelites kind of anti-Semitic. But, but along the way, we are not going to struggle if we want, if we have any desire at all, we will not struggle to bridge this to bridge this prophecy, these warnings, these messages to our own world. Like if I think of a world, that has created some level of, uh, of comfort, of benefit on largely economic commercial enterprises where we go to church and we do the things and we sing the songs and we produce all the stuff. And, 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 and if you look at it, it sure looks like we love the Lord our God with all our heart. So like, I feel like this probably feels very, very close to home. To me, what do you think about what do you think about that, Brent?
0: Yeah, and i I think the the shift to confronting the leadership um, was actually like it, like in that last section, he comes out so strong against the whole nation, but then right at the end, he kind of pulls the punch. He says, you know, unless whatever, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. And the very next verse. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Ooh. It's like, okay, well, they're not they're not quite that bad, but our leadership is. Sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're you're almost right on the doorstep of this moment that we we have we have dodged and avoided in good ways and bad up to this point, and yet here we are and and we're at a tipping point. What will the next decision be? Yeah, I really like that.
0: When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow.
1: Right, and here's that call to justice, to mishpat, that we looked at all throughout uh, session two. But I love the... Again, I find this to be one of the most applicable sections to Isaiah in my mind, to the to the person that I am, to the people that I'm a part of, to the church today in my corner of the world, where there is a direct connect. You can be as prayerful as worshipful, and I would imagine as authentic in your worship. Like I'm not imagining, like I'm picturing these people, they they think they love the Lord, they they on some level they, there's an authentic worship taking place and yet god says but there's an there's a dissonance there's an inauthenticity to your worship that you may not even you think you're giving me this pure worship and yet your lifestyle and the way that you're building the world is so there's such a dissonance between that that i won't even i won't even i won't even listen to your worship i won't even hear your prayers because because your hands are full of blood. Because s- take care of the orphan. Look out for the widow. Make sure you're not taking advantage of the foreigner. Uh, and 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 you know me, I usually try to avoid like that feels applicable. Like that feels applicable. Like I don't want to <laughs> get on a political rant, but those the critique of Isaiah one feels like something, not that it's directed at us, Isaiah 1 is not for the church in America, but if we can't learn anything from this, I'm wondering if there's anything we're going to be able to hear in the prophets if we can't hear some of this stuff from Isaiah 1.
0: Yeah. All right, I think we got a little bit more in, in chapter one here. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Now, when it says let us settle the matter, is that like God saying, I want to work with you and like, figure this out together? Or is this more like a, the, the name of God being plural kind of thing?
1: I, I, that would be a great question for L to make sure I'm not misspeaking, but I believe that is a, it's an invitation. Let us, you and I speaker and hearer, let us sit down and reason together. Absolutely.
0: Okay. That's what I would assume. But I just like, I don't know. I I didn't know if God is like, okay, I can't even talk to these people because they're so, they're so far away. Like I got to figure out what I'm going to do here or something. I don't know. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken.
1: All right. And part of what I love about this little section is I hear these words, not not at all a sarcastic Like, this is a legitimate invitation. Like... God, Isaiah, however you want to hear that and phrase that. Like there's a legitimate, come let us, let us consider these things. Let us reason together. Let us figure this out. And and what I love about that passage is it stands in contrast to so much of what we experience today. So today we are often polarized and there's this bifurcated conversation between uh, a people of faith, uh, a church, uh, you know, uh, a whole belief system that no, nothing is wrong. This is all great. And then on the other side, you have a whole group of people that are deconstructing, for obvious reasons. Like there, there are reasons that they're deconstructing, legitimate reasons. And and hopefully, like nobody would be surprised to hear me being sympathetic to that and and empathetic to that experience. A, a lot of our listeners find some sense of home in these discussions because that's a part of what they're doing. They're trying to pull apart. And I know the word deconstruction for some of us just, so rephrase it, think about this. but they're pulling apart their faith. They're trying to examine things. And and the other side is just resisting that that, that deconstruction. They're resisting the pulling apart. They're resisting the critique. And so what that does to the other side is it causes this just like kind of this exacerbation, This this, it just takes it. And so what you end up with is you end up with all these social media accounts, um, these TikTok personalities that, that all they offer, all they offer is critique. Like all they offer is versus, um, uh, let's see, versus like 10 through 15, uh, versus 5 through 14, maybe I would say. Like all they offer is the, this is what's wrong. Look at how crazy this is. And just but but in Isaiah there is this called like okay, but we're gonna do something about this. We're gonna do we're gonna take one step beyond critique. Now the critique is completely legitimate. Don't hear me, don't hear me saying anything other than I, I, I'm with you. Verses verses five through fourteen are spot on, but then there's also verses eighteen through twenty, like there's there's this call of, okay, there's some sense of hope. There's some sense of commitment to this thing that God has been doing that needs to be repaired and restored. And, and I, I find that to be a challenge and a beautiful contrast to a world that says, oh, no, there's nothing wrong. I'm going to ignore verses 5 through 14 and another crowd that only lives in verses 5 through 14. But what about the other verses that say, but let us come do, let us reason together. Let's build something. And again, that's not some passive aggressive plea for people to not leave the church or not go on your journey or any of those kinds of things. Those journeys are completely valid. There's a million reasons why you would do all that stuff. But is there a place in our wrestling match, in our thought process? um, Is there a space where we're trying to we're trying to get back to. We're trying to chuva. We talked about shuva in, in session two, that idea of returning. And is there any space for actual repentance, or is it just a, a case of judgment? It's either good or bad, right or wrong, in or out. Is there any sense of the nuanced process of making things right? Uh, that That's what I loved about those few verses. And really the rest of Isaiah 1 is just more of, it's kind of more of the same, the provocative language of critique, this prophetic fire of Isaiah really just kind of coming at people. And then we get to Isaiah 2. So I think we're going to jump ahead to Isaiah 2, Brent. We're already, I don't know, 25 minutes into this conversation, so we probably should pick up the
0: pace a tad. Yeah, all right, all right. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord.
1: And there's one of those small little sections. And we talked all throughout session two, Brent, about a sprinkling of what? Of hope. Sprinkling of hope. And there's a little, there's like this beautiful little vision, like this beautiful little dream right there at the beginning of chapter two, after a whole chapter of just critique and denouncement. And again, kind of going back to my last comments there a moment ago, Isaiah doesn't envision this world where we all, we just gave up on God's plan and left. And then, and then who knows what? There is a belief that the thing that God wanted to do and the thing that God was building, as corrupt as it may be, like God will will deal with the corruption. Like, trust it, trust in God enough to know that He will deal with the stuff that needs to be dealt with. He will clean house when he determines that it's time to clean house and he will call his people to repentance. but what but his plan was this beautiful plan that is the thing that Isaiah still longs for still still craves and still envisions it's not some new idea it's not a plan b it's a restored commitment a restored faithfulness to plan a and 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 you see that at the beginning of chapter two but it doesn't last forever brent as you might see in the next verses (laughs) yes you lord and
0: hold hold a thought on that for a second have abandoned your people the descendants of jacob they are full of superstitions from the east They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them.
1: Yeah. So we do. We have that. We have that. We start off with this one phrase that doesn't alarm us at all. It reads wonderfully in the NIV. A lot of translations are going to insert. You. You had. What did it? What did it read, Brent? You Lord have abandoned your people. Okay. Doesn't seem like. Of course. Yeah. Why would there be a? And yet, what does your footnote say in the NET? You said, Brent. Uh, it says that the word. Lord has been supplied in the translation for clarification. So they're wanting to clarify who's abandoning who. Um, and so they're adding the word Lord, and the word Lord is not actually in the original language. And they could very well be right, and yet I'm not sure they can be as as, com- as, as convinced—what am I trying to say? As sure of that clarity they're offering as they ought to be. Robert Alter, who a lot of people know is can be one of my favorite sources— I will use his, his resource, his, he has a translation of Tanakh stock full of footnotes that Reed introduced me to years ago. And so I'll use a lot of his thoughts. He's just a brilliant thinker. I love his thoughts and I trust his translation work in a lot of ways. Don't always agree with it, but I love what he's doing. And, and he actually is of the mind that in the Hebrew you, that would not it, it's not clarity and it's not justified to simply throw the word lord in there and make it about god he's of the position that the you there is is likely more likely a reference to the nation the people so you have abandoned your people and abandoned their people insinuates that he that they have forsaken and these are his words i'm i'm i don't want to put words in his mouth i'm i'm it's not a full quote quotation but in, in his footnote, if you want to check it out yourself, he says that they have forsaken their calling and their identity. I would say in Bema language, they're no longer trusting the story. They have forsaken the thing. They've stepped out of the story that God's been trying to tell. And so because of that, they are in a lot of ways abandoning the faith, all the work of the patriarchs. How we got to this point, all these people, like I think about Hebrews talking about the hall of faith and all these people that walked the path, all these people that have walked the path to get them there. And yet they are they are abandoning all of that work as they build this other empire for themselves. They're abandoning their own people. And so I thought that note was really great. I, I didn't actually read it in the NIV. The ESV just simply says, I have it in front of me right now. It says, um, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. So I think you kind of assume in the ESV that it's probably God they're talking about. And yet when you look at that grammatically and you check out what Alter's is talking about with what limited tools that I have at my disposal, I really think he's probably onto something there. They have rejected their own calling, identity, story. They've stepped out of the plot. They're losing the plot of this thing that God is doing. And that's how I see that. But do you have any other thoughts
0: on that, Brent? Uh, I just was going to clarify. The Philistines were on the coast, right? Correct. They're on the south.
1: Yeah, you have the uh, the Phoenicians to the north on the coast, and you have the Philistines on the south
0: on the coast. So it says, you know, they're full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines, which are a little bit west of them. But it's kind of like, oh, you're looking every direction but up to the heavens to to do what you need to do. Yeah. You're looking, you're being influenced by all the people around you instead of coming to the Lord.
1: Sure. And and maybe even in this context, uh, not even just up to the heavens, but but in your own past. You're not even looking back to your own people. You're not even looking oh, sure. uh, uh, to the people on whose shoulders you stand, which I find interesting. I wasn't even going to talk about this, Brent, but you now you've done it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning, at the beginning of chapter two, which I do see, like Robert Alter says, this isn't a continual prophecy. There's a distinction. There was the utopian vision of chapter two, verses one through five. And then in, in Alter's mind, and the mind in most translators that I've I've seen, there's a there's a clean break and a new prophecy beginning in cha- in verse six in two two verse six. And yet at the very beginning of this chapter, and the first verse or two of chapter two, it says Um, in Amos gets this vision from the Lord and it starts with the words in, in those latter days. And I used to actually do a weekend, um, event that you came with me, uh, to Seattle once, I believe, or wherever you joined me somewhere. I can't remember where it was. Was it Seattle? Uh, Yeah. Bellevue, but yeah. Yeah. And, and we were, we were there. And part of the talking point was that, was that verse. And, and there's some rabbinical discussion, that I was told about by a good friend of mine named Brad, and he he said there's there's this rabbinical discussion about what that phrase means, the latter days, because because the phrase according to the rabbis in the rabbinical commentary more more appropriately is the behind days, which there are days that's a weird way to word it. There are other ways that you could word it in the Hebrew, and yet and yet the author you know Isaiah chose to word it that way. So what does that mean? And the rabbi said it's because the pagan nations which what did you just say they were critiqued for
0: Brent practicing the superstitions and customs of those nations
1: yeah East and west right they're looking at and it's it's the pagan nations that try to and you reference superstitions tried to they try to figure out the future they try to look into the future and figure out what's coming that's a pagan practice but God's people according to the rabbis know that only God could understand only God could interpret only God could see the future so what we do is we keep our eyes, fixed on the past and what we what we know to be true because of what God has done and we back into the future we put our back to the future and we walk backwards Instead of looking ahead, trying to figure out what's coming, we know that that would be a foolish project Could only because only God could do that. So instead we turn around, we kind of peer over our shoulders as we walk backwards, but we we keep our perspective fixed on what we know for sure from our past. And I wasn't even going to bring that up. And yet in the light of this conversation, it feels interesting to me that it was just a few verses ago where that phrase showed up and now they're getting accused of, abandoning their story, abandoning. They haven't fixed their eyes back on where they've come from. They're, they're fixing their eyes on what's to the, you know, they're, they're acting like pagans. They're wanting to be like pagans and they're wanting to. So I, I find that to be a really interesting bridge. I love it. Yeah.
0: And even verse five, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord while well, walking in the light of the Lord means looking backwards and letting, letting the Lord lead us. Sure. From over the shoulder. And then in verse six, it reminds them again you have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. Like, hey, remember, you're supposed to be looking back at where you descended from, but instead you're full of superstitions from the east, blah, blah, blah. Yep. So, yeah, I think that all fits.
1: Yeah, 100%. I didn't know I, didn't know I was going to
0: get that out of you today. Buddy. Yeah,
1: no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> I, I I, was going to move right past it, but you wouldn't let me.
0: All right. Well, we're seriously running out of time, so I think we should jump down to Isaiah 4.
1: Yeah. And let me just—passing comments on Isaiah 3 would be that we have this—we talked about this somewhat in session 2. We, we have this picture of—like, if you paint the picture of what Isaiah is critiquing here in these opening chapters— you have a people obsessed with, consumed with greed, and that's their critique. It is it's a people of greed. It's not leaders versus people, just like Heschel was pointing out, but it's a people that have followed leaders astray. And they've probably followed them astray because the world that they're benefiting from as they have followed those leaders benefits them greatly, and they have no problem following these leaders. And so that's what you see in Isaiah chapter 3. So let me get to Isaiah 4. In that day, the branch
0: of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and
1: hiding place from the storm and rain. Okay, so there's this idea, uh, uh, this concept of a branch or a shoot that Isaiah is going to use more than once. And this in the Hebrew, there is this concept of netzer. Netzer. And the Netzer is the is a shoot or a branch. So we've talked about Nazareth, Nazareth, where Jesus was from. Natzer it was Netzerville. They, they were the shoot town, the branch the the, the branch city. So there is this concept of a Netzer. Now, what the image that's being used here that I think most all of Isaiah's Readers would understand that we're usually unfamiliar with is the concept of pruning an olive tree. I think the assumption here is he's working with this olive tree image. That's typically what the word netzer refers to. You have this conversation about netzer and hoter. Hoter is another word that we'll talk about sometime. But netzer is a branch, and every I've been told when I was taught this, it was four hundred years. Now I'm not sure how you do that, how you keep record over the course of ten generations. But every three to 400 years, you prune an olive tree by essentially just, you know, going, going kind of to the, the middle top of the trunk and just chopping it off right where the branches start to, start to come out of the trunk. You go right to the top of the trunk where the branches start to emerge and you just chop it off. So you have a flat, what, looks, what would look like a flat stump. And out of that stump grows a brand new, sh- starts to grow shoots. And eventually you get this first shoot that starts to come out of the stump and that's a netzer and so the image here is that god is pruning his olive tree that that it's if he doesn't it's going to become wild it's going to become uncultivated and it will eventually become useless and so he has to and so you can picture the exile And and God disciplining his people as a pruning process of an olive tree. He chops it off. And at some point, you would look at it and be like, man, is it dead? Will it ever come back to life? And sure enough, that's actually how you keep an olive tree alive for centuries and centuries and centuries, producing beautiful good olive oil and olives is because you do this pruning process. And so out of this stump where where God has disciplined, God has pruned, out of the stump rises a netzer. Now, we always connect that to Jesus for good reason, and I'm not necessarily arguing about that. But if you remember all our conversations uh, in session two, I don't believe Isaiah necessarily has Jesus in mind when he does this. I think Isaiah is, is, is drawing on this call to his people. There will be a remnant. There, there is this filth and excrement um, that's the word that's used there, and I, I think it was Alter. Was Alter's notes that talk about this? There's blood guilt. The word that's used for blood guilt, according to Alter, is the word for for murder. So again, it's not just idolatry. It's not just abstract disobedience. What they're doing has it, it has to do with real lives, with actual people, with names and stories and families. And because of this, God is pruning and cultivating, and there will be a remnant. God will preserve a remnant so that he can still grow his beautiful olive tree so that he can. And I think the New Testament is going to play on these images as well. But that's your that's your vision of a netzer in Isaiah chapter 4. Remarkably short chapter, really. It is. It is. It does help us move through Isaiah. And we're even going to skip chapter 5 and try to get to... Uh, Try to get to our last chapter. We're going to look at today here, chapter six of Isaiah.
0: Yeah, I feel like we covered a lot of Isaiah five. We sure did. Original episode.
1: If I talk about it, it will just be. Oh yeah, I'll just. I won't be able to stop. So we're just going to refer us back to session two and go from there.
0: Yeah, refer to episode fifty-one, newly re-recorded. Ah, yes. Remastered audio. not really remastered. Total, totally new recording because we goofed that one up. But yeah, refer to episode fifty-one if you want to get back on that idea. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke.
1: All right. You said when you started reading, Brent, this is where it what? Where it gets fun. This is, I mean, (laughs) if you, if you're at all trying to let your- For some definitions of fun. Yeah. Yeah. If you're trying to let, if you're letting yourself get pulled into the story here, like the scene here would be, if this were turned into cinema, it would be dramatic. Like, I'd love to talk to Dallas about how he would do this scene in The Chosen, like what does it mean to stand in the presence of God and to see these angelic beings and to and the foundations of the heavenly temple shake like there there is it it, it has gotten interesting um, fun would be a weird word, but it has become very, very interesting here in this chapter of what the picture, the vision that Isaiah is is describing. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for
0: I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for.
1: All right. So this this crazy foundation-shaking scene makes Isaiah respond with his own humanity, his own frailty, his own futility, his own shortcomings. And it's this, I'm in the presence of God, and that provokes a particular experience in me, completely understandable. No critique, no poetry to add to that, just trying to pull ourselves into the story and realize what's happening in this moment. Go ahead, Brent.
0: I will say this uh, makes me realize that we did not consider the live coal theory of atonement when we went through Hebrews.
1: Ah, hey, maybe that's maybe we'll have to do
0: something with that. I like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we always need a new theory. Okay. Uh, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I send me. He said, go and tell this people be ever hearing, but never understanding be ever seeing, but never perceiving make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes otherwise they might see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts and turn and be
1: healed so brent what do you how do you feel about isaiah's response so you have this this heavenly temple shaking out its foundations the glory of the lord these crazy seraphim you you've got isaiah immediately responding with what feels obvious like yeah i totally can resonate and sympathize with this like here here's isaiah saying I've got unclean lips, and I shouldn't even be here. And woe is me! I'm I'm I am but uh, a worm. Like that 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 makes sense. And then God says, "I need somebody." And Isaiah says, "Send me." How do you feel about that response, Brent? What does that evoke in you?
0: Well, I mean, like he he's touched with the coal, and and has been declared atoned for, and guiltless. And he's like, okay. And then, and then when God, you know, asks who's going to go, he's like, well, here I am. Like, I, I've just been restored to what I need to be like, send me like, you just, you just fixed me up. I'm ready to go. I like that. It's like, he's excited.
1: Yeah. And I like, I like hearing the, the story that way. It's either that, or it's like, just like craziness. Like, what, what, like, how do you respond how do you respond with send me? Like I would be, I would be scared to death. So either he just trusted, he just trusted the story. Like either he, he truly embraced the atonement he was just offered or he's scared to death, but still, no matter what, no matter how that is unfolding, he says, here I am, send me. And this is that, this is the picture I think of when I, when I wrestle with Heschel's idea of pathos, this is pathos. This is where This is where Isaiah shows up and he has this experience and it scares him to death. And it may, it may make, it may not even make any logical sense. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't, but he has no choice. He can't unsee what he's seen. He can't unexperience what he's experiencing. And he has to respond with, I'm in. Like if you're looking for a partner, I'm not seeing a line behind me. So it's me. Let, let me go. Here I am, so that, that Hanani that we've heard before in Torah. So um, I, I love, I, I think of this passage often when I think of the picture of pathos, and I'm trying to wrap my head around what Heschel is talking about. It's this undeniable thing that I I kind of have to say yes to, because what choices do I have? And yet it's not, I'm not choosing it. It's not glorious. It's not like I want to say yes. It's not, But but I have to. This is this is the life and the call and the and the world and the work of the prophet.
0: And it's kind of some interesting like callbacks to previous things. So in the in the text as we read it, it's make the heart of this people calloused. The footnote says the Septuagint renders it as this people's heart has become calloused. So I kind of see like the Pharaoh situation where it's like, okay, is is God actually hardening his heart? Right. I mean, that's what it says sometimes, but like, it also says the is hardening his own. So like, what's going on there? Yep. And then you get this like hint of, um, Genesis 18, God says, I'll do all this stuff. And then Isaiah's like, well, for how long? Sure. (laughs) Because that doesn't seem like a good thing. Yep. And it's almost like he's ready to negotiate. Like, well, what if we, you know, I mean, God's going to give the answer and I don't, Oh, yeah. does he, does he actually turn around and respond to this in seven? No. So this is the end. Like he doesn't actually do the negotiation.
1: Right. Yep.
0: But, but he's, it's almost like, ah, God, does it have to be, and let me, let me, let me read the rest of it. Um, then I said, for how long Lord? And he answered until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So we do get back to that, like picture of, of yes. pruning and the stump and everything. But it's it's almost like it's like he's going to say, like, do they have to be completely ruined? Does it sure. Have, do we have to actually like after the tenth remains, can we just leave it at that? Like, do we have to? lay waste again but he never actually comes back and does the negotiation yep which is you know i think maybe speaks to the idea that he's not excited (laughs) he's not he's not quite trusting the story and saying like oh i'm i'm ready to go he's just totally terrified and like can't figure out how to how to quite respond i don't know
1: yeah which you know who who could blame him you know the story i I can't help but think about whenever i whenever I think about this whole scene, I've been reading Tolkien with my family. Uh, I've been doing that since sabbatical started. And I can't help but see Frodo in this. And not to make light of Isaiah on one level, it feels like a stupid parallel. But in that story, there's this, and Frodo keeps trying to get rid of the ring at different points. Like, And eventually he gets to, um, gets to Rivendell and there's this big council meeting. If you remember that part of the story or the movie, and they're all trying to figure out what they're, he's, he got the ring to Rivendell. That's what he thought he was going to do. And, and everybody's trying to figure out who's going to take it from here. Cause they got, they got to get to Mordor. They got it. That's and, and it's not going to work. And he has to step in and say, I'll take it. Like this is, and, and I just see the same like pathos, like nobody else can do this. I have to do this. This is my call. This is my burden, and there's all this discussion about what it's going to cost and what it's going to be like, and uh, and and he just and that's what I think of when I think of I think of this journey, this you know fellowship of the ring type prophecy, like this thing that God's trying to do, and this calling of Isaiah, and Isaiah realizes this is and and God's very clear, like this isn't just going to be like a few lessons and chewing some people out and and getting on with it. This is going to be. We're in for punishment. We're in for destruction. We're in for total pruning. There will be a stump, but that stump will give way to the thing that needs to grow in the future. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. So that's really it. Like the, the six chapters of Isaiah, and I really did. I, uh, you are asking that question about Uzziah um, or pointing out that that was the first king. And so this first section of Isaiah takes us through, you saw there at the beginning of chapter six, the end of Uzziah's reign. And all of this warning, and now I wonder, with uh, with Uzziah's death, if this is where all of a sudden Isaiah realizes, all right, there's we've got more in front of us. This is going to get ugly, and that that really sets us up in a lot of ways um, for the next episode. I did want to recommend uh, recently Derek Rohr, who was on our our um, episode not too long ago, talking with Reed about friendship. Uh, he just preached, just I, I thought was a was a really great sermon on Isaiah six and bridging the gap to the things that we experience in our life. And if anybody's looking for any, uh, extra material or a wonderful sermon, devotional thought to wrestle with, um, I found it to be just a really beautiful, uh, depiction and description of, of what that throne room can, that, what that, that experience can look like in our own lives. So we'll link that in the show notes so that people can find it and, and see it there.
0: Sounds good. That, uh, that does it for this episode, Marty We <laughs> we, uh, we covered a lot and we didn't even We didn't quite get every verse, but boy if, Yeah, yeah, so So many things to uh, to continue To wrestle with as we go forward So everyone can go to Baymontestablish.com to find the show notes To find groups, to find uh, upcoming events, all that stuff is there uh, The contact page is going to give you The most up-to-date way to get in touch with us So thanks for joining us on the Baymo Podcast We'll talk to you again soon